So it's my job to go, okay, I do feel a bit scared of rejection, but hey, I'm just going to keep going anyway. Nobody can reject me without my consent, and my consent is not given. Procrastination is trying to protect you from failing, and you have a choice. Give in to it or talk yourself out of it. You only ever have two choices. I've got an amazing quote of yours that you broke down. Thoughts dictate feelings, your feelings dictate your actions, and your actions dictate your events. But here's the thing, we always focus on the feeling, not the thought. Yeah. But I love that you say everything stems from there. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Because people say feelings come before thoughts. No, they don't. If I had a big plate of meat in front of you, what you think about that, it comes, affects the feeling. If you're a vegan, it's disgusting. If you're a bodybuilder, it's great. If I hold up a needle, it's the thought, oh, that's going to hurt. That's going to make me look 10 years younger. That's going to make me high. I'm going to have a tattoo. So we all believe that we can't control our feelings. When you get it right, thoughts control feelings. The thought comes before the feeling. When you go backwards again, it's like so if everything starts with a thought, it's easier to change your thoughts than to change your feelings. And if you just keep changing your thoughts, what happens is it actually starts to change your entire life. So for instance, you might have a feeling. Um, what is it? Is it scared or is it excited? I don't know, because they feel exactly the same. If you watch someone on a roller coaster screaming, are they scared or excited? They don't even know. But you get to choose to go, I'm excited. I'm feeling great or I'm terrified and I'm falling apart. And when you can start to think about what you're feeling and decide to make it feel good. I'm feeling challenged. I'm feeling all right about this. I'm feeling I can do it. I've got this tingling in my toes. What is that terror or excitement? Well, I don't know, but I'm gonna tell myself it's excitement. Then you're gonna win at life all the time because you get to be in control. This is saying I'm run by my feelings. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so knowing that, how do we then start to change that thought pattern? Well, again, everything comes, the way you feel about everything, you see, the way you feel about something is down to two things, the pictures you make in your head and the words you say to yourself. And you could even cut that down and say the way you feel is down to the words. So we use these amazing words, terrifying, it's killing me, I'm dying. Um, and you've got to change the words. That's challenging, that's interesting, that's um, fascinating and stop saying it's killing me. Oh, I look a mess, um, I look terrible, I've got a memory like a sieve, I'm going out of my mind. You think, oh, well, if I'm prepared to lie, why don't I just tell myself a better lie? I look a little dehydrated, I look a little sleep deprived. And when you start to tell yourself a better lie, sort of saying, I'm terrified, I'm challenged, this is driving me mad, this is a situation your whole life changes on a dime because you realize, oh, I was lying to mm. myself and it felt real. So at least I'm gonna to lie to myself in a good way and it will feel real. I love that so much. And you, I heard you break it down even more to the point where it's like, look, if a guy looks at a porno, he gets an erection. Yeah. If a woman or anyone feels embarrassed, they blush. Yeah. So making that 
the mental connection with the body yeah. is so strong. So explain to me if I'm, because someone might even say, well, what's the big difference? I'm saying I could eat a horse, I'm starving. Like, why does that actually matter? Can you break that yeah, down to course. how your body then responds? So the well? only way your mind knows how you feel is the word used. If one more guy dumps me, it will kill me. If one more client challenges me, it'll be the end of me. If one more client sends back my product, I'll kill myself. So now what my mind has worked out is that my business is killing me. If I say this job will be the death of me, this commute is killing me, this client makes me want to die, my mind, which can only work out what I'm feeling through my words, only my words, nothing but my words, will go, that place called job is killing you. My, my, my job is to keep you alive, so why don't I give you a lovely ulcer or panic attacks or a phobia, now you can't leave the house and go to that place called job that is killing you. And I see this time and time again with clients who come in and say, you know, I've got a sensitivity, I can't leave the house. I've got sensitivity to light or all these allergies. And when we talk more, they go, when I was bullied when I was 11, what did you think? They went, well, I thought, I wish I could never leave the house. I never realized I'd make myself unable to leave the house. I thought a thought and it's become real because thoughts become real. As you said, when you think an emotional thought, tears leak out of your eyes and you're just watching television. <laughs> a commercial. You, you think an embarrassing thought and you get embarrassed. You look at a picture that's just dots and get aroused because thoughts are real. We all know we think about food and our stomach rumbles. We sit in the movies. I'm not hungry, but there's a picture of food. Oh, I, I now I need to, I could eat a horse. I'm starving. And these are wrong thoughts, by the way, because nobody could eat a horse, even a quarter of it. And in this country, you're unlikely to have ever been truly starving. So we think a thought, and every thought you think causes a physical reaction, like blushing. It also causes an emotional response. And everything goes back to thoughts. So when you can take control of your thoughts, you really can make your life extraordinary. But you have to see your mind as like a big racehorse. And you're a driver who's never been on a horse before and goes, I, I don't even know how to make this horse go where I want it to go. But if you have some horse riding lessons, you get on a powerful horse and you know, do that with your knees, you do that with your hands, and you kind of give the horse signals and it goes exactly where you want it to go. But you have to learn the signals to give the horse. I mean, the first time I rode a horse, I didn't realize it's all to do with your knees and your calves and you're sending signals to the horse. And it's the same with the mind. You just have to understand that it's sending you signals because you sent it signals. Uh, I could never speak in public. I don't like confrontation. I, I can't do rejection. I, I, I could write a book, but what if everybody hated it? I could do that, but what if it went wrong? And it's like biofeedback. So if you send yourself better signals, you get better results. And now that horse will go where you want it to go because you're driving something very powerful, but you know what to do with your knees and your hands. But the thing about the brain that you really should be taught in school is that we are hardwired to return to what is familiar mm. and to resist what is unfamiliar. So if you've never had praise, no one's ever said, oh my God, you're so great, look at you, but said, oh, you'll never, make, you'll never amount to anything. When someone says, wow, you're great, you go, what are you talking about? I haven't even combed my hair. Oh, this thing, I've had it for five years. It was second hand. And if we've never had praise and it's unfamiliar, 
we reject it and add in what is for me the criticism. And that's the most damaging thing I see, people who can't accept praise. Hey, I read your book. It was terrible, wasn't it? No, it was great. Didn't you notice the spelling mistake? No. I came to see you speak. Oh, did you notice I got it all wrong? I stuttered on it. No. Oh, well, let me tell you then how bad I was. And just getting those people to stop criticizing themselves and to praise themselves a lot is trans transformational, but it's so important to see that we're wired to return to what's familiar. That's a fact, but here's another fact. You can make anything you like familiar, because if you couldn't, you'd still be peeing in your pants. You'd still be trying to eat a banana and getting it in your ear or your hair. People get rid of really good stuff if it's unfamiliar, which is why 70% of lottery winners are dead broke in three years. If you are not used to money and you get it, it's almost guaranteed you'll get rid of it all because A, you didn't feel you earned it, but B, it's just not familiar. Oh, there's so much you just said there. So I've heard a lot, like everyone goes back to the familiar. Yeah. So there's actually two things there. There's one of how do you identify what that familiar is so that you can mm -hmm. change it. Yeah. And then second of all, um, some people go the opposite way. Mm -hmm. So for instance, my mum was brought up in a convent with nuns. Yeah. And at a very young age, I mean, they were very strict, right? Of course. And so at a very young age, she said to herself, when I have kids, I'm going to give them every ounce of love. And mm -hmm. she completely switched into the complete opposite. Um, so A, what is even happening there? Mm. And is there a way of getting them when they're young? Or is it just, you just have to, as you get older, recognize when something isn't serving you and then do what you're saying? Well, it's a bit of both, actually. When you get older and you're thinking a thought, you have to stop and think, hey, where did this thought come from? Who gave me this thought? And why am I thinking this thought? Like my grandmother was, if you walked into the house with a packet of Tampax in your hand, that she would go bright red and go, no, put that away. Do that. Nobody wants to know about that. That was like something so dirty and forbidden and you never mentioned the P word. And now we're a generation where it's, it's totally normal. So stop and ask the question, why do I believe this belief? Who told me that belief? What did they know? Where did they learn it? And so question where these beliefs come from and then just give them up. And the second thing about some people naturally rebellious, well, some people are because remember the nuns didn't give birth to your mother. They just raised her. So she had a home life and a school life. And often they're very conflicting. We often think when I grow up, I'm never going to, I'm going to do the opposite. You either end up doing exactly the same or the polar opposite. Mm. Often it's better to do the opposite. Yeah. I've actually heard you say there are three things that really a child needs. Feeling loved, feeling significant and having purpose. Yeah. Um, what have you noticed in people that haven't had all three of those? Yeah. Children have very simple needs and your job is to meet those needs. Doesn't matter how much organic broccoli you give them or teach them Mandarin. <laughs> if you're not meeting your child's needs for significance mm -hmm. and safety, and being proud of them, then you haven't really succeeded. I know that's hard to hear, and certainly as a parent, I got so much of it wrong. But when the need isn't met, we go into the world and two things happen. First, we have a belief. I never felt safe, I never felt loved, I never felt I mattered, and we have a tag. It will always be that way. It will be that way for the rest of my life. That's the first thing. The second thing is, 
because our parents couldn't meet our need, we become needy. We go, hey, Lisa, could you, mm. could you make me feel good about myself? Could you make me, could you be my new best friend and tell me I'm great? Or, hey, could you date me or employ me? And, and could you do the job of filling up my unmet needs? We'll go, sure, I could do that. I'll be your new best friend or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. But in three years, I'm moving on. I'm going to find someone taller than you, younger than you. So I can do that for a while. And then the minute they leave or maybe they pass away, we're back to going, oh, I've got to find someone else and go, hey, could you now take this need? But when you sit back and go, okay, what's my need? I never felt significant. Can I do it? Because the best thing you can do to yourself, Barnon, is to sit down and write out, okay, I want to feel significant. I want to feel I matter. I want to feel my parents are proud of me. So I'm going to sit and go, hey, I'm significant. I matter. My parents are proud of me. Say it over and over and over again. And it's so weird. It happens so fast. So now you've, the bit that was empty is filled, but nobody can ever take it away because you did it. I love that so much. So you were saying, so you say it and then other things that you can put in place to say like, okay, I want to feel significant, so I'm going to do this because that's what's going to make me feel significant. It's more important to just say, I am significant. Okay. You see, when you quantify, I'm lovable because I'm a size eight. I'm, I'm lovable mm. because I'm... I'm, I'm important because I'm earning money. I'm significant because I've got this job. So it has to be you, not what you do or wear or own or buy, not what you add in or take away. There's nothing to be snipped off or injected in or dyed in or bleached in. <laughs> it has to be, I am significant now. So when I was growing up, my father was this headmaster. My brother went to private school. He was the smart one. My sister was the beautiful little baby. And I just felt like this thing, this blob. I didn't feel attractive or smart because my brother was, the, he had the smart role. My sister had the cute role. So I just didn't have a role. And interesting, those people tend to be the carers. So that wasn't surprising. But one day I realized that I wanted to be the favorite. So I started to go, I'm the favorite, I'm the favorite, I'm the favorite. So I started to say, and of course the thing with the mind is it doesn't know if that's true or not. And it really doesn't care. Whatever you say to your mind, it lets in. I'm an idiot, I'm so smart. I'm unlovable, I'm magnetically lovable. It doesn't stop to think, is that real? It just lets it in. So the most amazing that happened is I just written my first book and I did an interview in somewhere like the New York Times and my name was everywhere and suddenly my dad was like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. Oh my God, you're my favorite child, I even said that word. Oh, and I wow. thought, do you know, this is so weird. I've wanted this my whole life and now I've got it. It didn't mean a thing. I'm thinking actually now I feel uncomfortable because this is so rude to my brother and sister. They haven't done anything to deserve being ignored. And then the penny clicked. Oh, you see, I've done it myself for so long that now he's doing it is very much surplus to requirements. So I wanted my whole life. Mm. When I got it, I didn't need it. And it didn't mean what I thought it would mean because I'd already done it years before. And so you might as well tell yourself amazing stuff because it's very likely to become real. Same thing, sadly, with negative stuff. It's like, I can't do it, I can do it. You know, I was at the CNN Tower in Toronto several years ago and they have a whole glass floor. And I walked around, people were like 
freak out, crying, sitting on the floor, going, I can't do it, because they were all looking down. But the floor is completely safe. It's the picture you make of falling. Many people walk to the edge of a building and their stomach drops, even though there's a plate glass window, because of the pictures you make. And you can only go up high and do stuff. When you make a different picture, this is completely safe, this is fine, this is exciting, this is thrilling, I love this, I am safe, I'm safe here. But if you say the opposite, I'm not safe, I'm gonna fall, I'm gonna die, then you're actually terrifying yourself only with mm -hmm. one thing, the thoughts you're thinking, the words you're putting in your head, the pictures you're making. Yeah, that's so strong. And I didn't actually really know all of that when I first got married. Mm -hmm. But even when my husband and I first got married, we always swore we wouldn't even joke about divorce. We call it the D word yeah. in the family. And it was almost like, it was just one of those things that it just didn't feel right to even tease each other yeah. in a lighthearted way. And after hearing everything you're saying, like it all makes very much sense because I'm telling myself by not even saying that word based on everything that you're yeah. saying that, to me, divorce, and it's not that it's not an option because if my husband laid a finger on me or cheated on me, mm. I would divorce him in a heartbeat. Sure. So I've told him it is an option, mm. but apart from that, it isn't an option. Yeah. Like I, he gets really badly burned. He gets paralyzed. Like to me, divorce isn't an option. Mm. Like, so we just know that and we, it's kind yeah. of like a reminder of our connection that it can't be broken. Yeah. And you're so clever because I saw so many clients who tell me this same story. My mum used to pack her bags, right. walk out the store, I'm not coming back. My mum left me in a store, obviously drove around and came back. But she told me she would leave me if I didn't shape up. I'll leave you. I'm off if you don't behave. And I saw the damage that did. And I remember when I got married, I I'd never say to my husband, I'm leaving you if you do that. Mm. I'm off if you do that. If you do that again, I'm divorcing you because it's a game you play, but you absolutely threaten a relationship when you threaten to leave, when you say to your kid or your partner or even your friends, well, I don't like you if you're doing that, so I'm going to leave you. Never threaten to leave unless you really want to leave. Don't play games, mm -hmm. be honest. Tell people what you want, especially in a relationship. What do you want? People say, well, I don't want to say in case I get rejected. Then you get rejected because, well, I never knew you wanted that. You never told me. I never knew I disappointed you in bed. I had no idea that every time I didn't stack the dishwasher, you were seething inside. I didn't know it bugged you so much. So you have to have enough of yourself to go, hey, this is what I want. And this is what, because in relationships, women, women especially think the, the perfect guy is psychic. He knows what to do in bed. He knows exactly what gift to get you. He knows you're having a bad day and it's your period. And then when he doesn't, they go, uh, he doesn't care. Mm. See, now we're lying to us. This is another lie. He doesn't care because he forgot my birthday. He doesn't care because I'm on my period. And he doesn't even understand I'm in pain. He doesn't care. So that's a lie. It's like, oh, he does care. He just doesn't understand. And you have to tell people, hey, this is a need I have. This is important to me. So when you're saying he doesn't care, what is that actually doing internally to you on how that, like how does that actually affect the relationship? Yeah. So the minute you tell yourself a lie or a story, my partner doesn't care because he's always home late. He doesn't care because he eats this lovely dinner, sits and doesn't even put his plate in the sink. 
you're telling yourself a story, but you see, now you put the word in your head, he doesn't care, she doesn't, they don't care, and now it's becoming real. And remember, we've gone back again to the way you feel is down to the thoughts. You think they don't care about me. So, you know, one day my husband, I mean, he's absolutely lovely, but he would sometimes go to bed, he'd just go to bed. And one day I said to him, you know, I know you love me, but when you go to bed and don't even lock the doors, I feel really uncared for. I like to be protected. And that work now every night locks all the doors, checks everything, because I didn't go. I know you, you don't care about me. You just go to bed and leave me here because you don't love me and you don't care. I said, I know you care and I know you'd love me to feel safe. So would you do this? And we still often have to start with, I know you care about me. I know I'm important to you. Would you please put your phone on and telling you something important? Would you, my husband says to me, would you please turn your phone over when I'm talking to you? Because it's a two-way thing. Would you shut the lid of your computer? So when you have a sense of yourself and can tell people, they tend to will do it. Because most people want to, most men want to please their partners. Most women want to please their partners. But if you don't tell people, now you tell yourself, as well, they don't care, mm. they're so thoughtless, they're so selfish, they're so whatever they are. And now you filled up your head again, it always comes back to the way you feel is down to the words you're saying. When you could just say, well, look, I know they care, so why are they doing this? Well, maybe they really don't know. You know, one of my clients, every year her husband is searching to recycling. He gave her the same Christmas card. He, he just put it back every year and gave, re-gave it to her until she said, that's it. I'm about to recycle you. If I get one more recycled card, you're going to get recycled next. But he had no idea that it bothered her. He thought it was a great idea. Why buy another one? Why put all that paper into landfill? Mm. It's got a nice message. She likes it. Just give it to her every year. And sometimes we wait so long to tell people, I, that really drives me crazy. You have to be super honest with what you want. But then to be honest, you have to have a sense of yourself that, well, I'm, I'm worthy of expressing my needs. Surely I deserve telling people what I need, then they can meet my needs. But we're so scared of rejection. That's, that's the biggest thing I see with people. We are, you know, 500 years ago, the thing that would kill you apart from hunger was rejection. You know, we lived in big groups. We need, took a whole tribe to be safe. They had to man the um, fort or, or man the little tribal gathering. And you, you could not survive on your own. And if you messed up and they banished you or cast you out, now you're on your own in the wilderness. That's it. You're pretty much finished. So we have, um, we have this fear that rejection will kill us. Hmm. It won't. It feels like it will, but it won't. So rejection is a tool that we understand. We're wired to be terrified of it. And all the things we do are to get it, to get people to like us. And we've forgotten that now that it doesn't kill us, if you can just like yourself, you'll never feel rejected ever. Hmm. Doesn't mean people won't leave you, but you won't feel like you're going to die from rejection. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business 
actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. So what do we do right now if we're stuck? Um, I don't want to say stuck. If yeah. we're um, on vacation in our home with people around us who maybe have a super negative mindset. And yeah. so let's say I'm at home right now. I'm listening to you. I'm like, yes, Marissa, that makes so much sense. Hell yeah. And then I stop the video. And then for the next 24 hours, 48 hours, all I have are people around me that are speaking negative and then fueling the anxiety in me again. What can I do then? Well, again, you do have a choice not to let that in. That does become harder when you're with somebody. So yesterday I was doing making an audio for children where they can go into their bloodstream and see the troop, the self-troops fighting viruses and the generals finding the virus, mm. the troops killing them and the cleanup crew cleaning them up. And I was showing parents that if you can make your children imagine these B cells and T-cells, and then monocytes as a cleanup crew, you know, people could be saying there's no immunity. Your mind is your immunity. You have an immune system that works better if you imagine it. Deep breathing boosts your immune system. Orgasms massively boost your immune system because your brain thinks you're having an orgasm. You're probably making a kid, I need to keep you well now because you've got to raise this kid. It's not enough to make it. So orgasms massively boost your immune system. I had no idea. Oh, did, yeah. Did Tom tell you to tell me that? <laughs> so every single day, 
But the thing is, it's not his orgasm. It's only <laughs> right. men are dispensable in nature. It's the woman that has to stay around to raise the child. So when women orgasm, it powerfully boosts their immune system. So orgasms, deep breathing, exercise, meditate, boost your immune system. But this guy came on, he went, that's so irresponsible. You are irresponsible telling people they can boost their immune system. I said, well, you're irresponsible telling them they can't. You can <laughs> actually can. It, it's a fact. Of course you can boost your immune system. And so it's responsibility means an ability to respond. If you are response able, you're able to respond. You have to respond better, make a choice. And we all know that because we know that many people take placebo pills and think they're working. And we know that when they make a new drug that makes hair grow, for instance, they have to give a placebo to the people who grow as much hair as the people on the real drug. And so we already know in our minds that thoughts are real. Every thought you think causes a physical reaction in your body. That's why if you think about sex, especially as a guy, you get a very physical reaction. It's called an erection. When you think about being embarrassed, you blush. When you think about something emotional, your eyes fill up with tears. And that might be an advert on the television where a puppy is rolled up in toilet. You go, oh, I feel so emotional watching that. So we know that thoughts affect our body. We blush, we get tears, we shake, we stutter, we get an erection. We feel completely aroused and turned on to a thought. We think of food, our stomach rumbles. So thoughts create a physical reaction in your body. So when you're living with someone negative, put headphones in, go and sit in the bathroom and run the taps or just decide, I don't have to let this in. It's her belief. It doesn't have to be mine. It's not easy being with people who are super negative, but you can just drown it out. You always have a choice. Yeah. Once upon a time, I would have thought everything you were saying was, yeah, it feels a little woo-woo. How can your mind really be that powerful? Oh, my God, how wrong I was. And because of my health, I have really just personally noticed the power of the mind. And it was like, okay, well, having a negative mindset that, you know, things like this doesn't work, doesn't serve you. So, okay, if I'm trying to serve myself, how do I serve myself? Okay, if I think positively and I am and I'm doing it to serve me, to get me healthy, then give it a shot. And as I started to do it, I really freaking started to notice how it was working. It was like, I, I was identifying myself as a sick person. I was identifying myself as a weak person. I was identifying myself as the person who gets stomach upsets every time I eat, stomach cramps. And then I was like, but I've now, going back to the imprint that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, I started to imprint all these elements into this is who I was. And I was like, this, this can't be good for me. So what if I just give it a shot? Like everything you're saying, what if I just give it a shot? And I really go into it thinking and believing it's going to work. And I did it and it worked. And I really, really, truly believe that the mind is so powerful when it comes to believing the food's going to hurt you, believing that you, you are strong or you are weak, believing you can do something or believing you can't right that famous phrase if you believe you can you can if you believe you can't you can't it's so true and so everything you're saying right now i want people to listen so closely because if they dismiss you they're not serving the potential of what they can achieve 
But now I want to actually talk about procrastination because going back to thinking a lot how we can um, right now in this situation, I think as humans, we procrastinate in a way. So Mm. now I've heard a lot of people talk about putting their lives on hold until it's over. So talk to me about that and why we're doing it, how we can actually break out of it. Because I truly believe that if we can figure out how to help people break out of this procrastination, they really can use this time to make themselves so much stronger. Um, Mm. So talk to me about how we can actually do that. Procrastination is often a fear of being rejected. You know, I, I, I could write a book now. Hey, I've got all these weeks at home. I could write my online program. I could write a speech. I could go online and, and practice being a comedian. I could do some online courses. But actually, I'm lying on the Soviet potato chips watching every episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. What's that all about? It's the fear of being rejected. Our fear of being rejected is so powerful that people write a book and they never send it to a publisher, have an idea and just let someone else have a better idea. And so the way to get by that is to go, okay, I have a fear of rejection. Let me look at that. 500 years ago, you would have died from being rejected. We used to banish people, cast them out, send them into isolation, maroon, difficult sailors we put difficult prisoners into isolation we send our kids to their room religious cults banish you and here we are now all feeling kind of banished and cast out and isolated but we're not and our fear of being rejected because it did kill us once upon a time is so powerful now you could live in your house get your food delivered by amazon and live till you're 105 It doesn't kill you, but it feels like it might. So when you procrastinate, take a minute and go, I could write a book. I could write a program. I could have my own blog. I'm procrastinating because I'm scared of rejection. But if I accept that the only person who can really reject me is me, and I'm not going to do that, then you'll be okay. You have to have the bounce back factor. I refuse to allow fear of rejection to stop me doing something. And if you do it, you'll be amazing because we all get rejected. But some people bounce back and say, no, I'm not. You know, when you watch X Factor or American Idol, people get, they come back the next year and then they win. One Direction came third on X Factor. They didn't come first. They become the... They became the most successful boy band in the world. So remember, you're procrastinating because of this primal fear of being rejected. It's not real. It's not going to kill you. It could actually make your life a million times better. I'm so glad my first boyfriend dumped me because I wouldn't want to be married to him. I'm so glad I got kicked out of college. I'm glad I got fired from different jobs that weren't the right thing for me. Sometimes rejection can be the best thing that ever happens to you. But you have to stop fearing it and look back to see that. That's what I was going to say, though, because in those moments when it doesn't feel like it, you've taken a dent to your ego, you feel like you've been kicked in the teeth, you've put yourself out there, you've pushed yourself to be vulnerable, and now you get people judging you. How do you make sure that you don't stick to it? Even if you intellectually know, okay, I need to keep going, sometimes the emotion does stop you from taking that next step. It does, but you have to, you see... Remember, the subconscious mind is always switched on and always recording 
my mind does not care if what I tell it is good or bad, true or false, useful or useless, healthy or unhealthy. It doesn't care because it doesn't know. So it's my job to go, okay, I do feel a bit scared of rejection, but hey, I'm just going to keep going anyway. Nobody can reject me without my consent, and my consent is not given. Procrastination is trying to protect you from failing, and you have a choice. Give in to it or talk yourself out of it. You only ever have two choices. Talk yourself out of it or rationalize why it's going on. Well, I can't do that. What if it's no good? What if nobody likes it? What if? It's amazing, and it changes your entire world. And please don't feel people who succeed haven't had failure. They've had so much failure, but they have the bounce back. But what's so amazing is that first it's what you do, but then it becomes who you are, and you naturally bounce back into, oh, this is great, this is positive. And I was talking to my daughter in London. I said, you know, darling, we're all in this together. Everyone is going through what you're going through. But you're so lucky you're a painter. And a week later, she said, Mom, I feel so lucky. You know, I'm doing so many paintings at home and I've got more and more paintings. And this club just wants all my paintings. So you've always got to rationalize. Talk yourself out of the bad stuff and into the good stuff. Because we all do that. We talk to ourselves every day. Just do a better job. I mean, you know, as a people who lifts weights, that you lift weight if you go, oh, this is too heavy. Oh, this is painful. You have to do it. And then what weightlifters do is they lift a weight and then they see themselves lift, lifting a heavier weight. I do yoga and in yoga you do a move and then you see yourself doing the move better. Keep getting your legs straight, putting your forehead on your knees as you stand up and bend forward. And if you see it, you achieve it because your mind reacts to the pictures when you Think a thought, hear a word, or see a picture, your body immediately goes to work to make that picture real. Just hearing the words is causing your body to picture it and manifest it. The problem is it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It does it either way. So you might as well have great thoughts because they'll probably come true. I love that. And as you were talking about your daughter, I was actually wondering if your daughter was really young right now, what language would you use around what is happening right now with us being vacationing in our home? Um, what language would you use? Let's say, for instance, um, she was about to do something and you have a concern for her that yeah. she's going to fall or something in this time. How yeah. do you use language? How do you see some, say something in a positive way, even if you see potential danger on the other side? And that's very true because when she was little, I would never go, you're going to fall. You're going to fall over now. You're going to fall out of that tree. Because I hear parents go, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to break your neck. You're going to break your leg. And I'd always go, Phaedra, when you climb a tree, look at your hand. Look at your foot. Look at the branches. When you're riding your bike, keep looking ahead. And in the same way that we put a seatbelt on every time we get in the car, we don't think I'm going to crash. We think it's a protection. When I go to bed at night, I go and I lock all my doors. I don't think someone's going to come in and murder me, but I take sensible precautions. So with children, I'd say, you know how we always put the seatbelt on to be safe? You know how mommy locks the front door to be safe? We got on a plane, we buckle up to be safe. Well, there's some germs in the world right now and there's a bit too many germs and so we're all being safe we're staying at home 
while the germs die off. Germs live on a surface and they die. They don't live very long. They will die. So we're in our home and grandma's in her home. We're just leaving those germs outside to die off. And we're in home, at home where there aren't germs. And, and we, we've just made this amazing program for children where they sing this song. They sing this song to the immune system. And one of the lyrics is, my cleanup squad is making antibodies. And every hell, <laughs> my cleanup crew are making myself new. It's so fun because my troops have won. And so we're making this song, this game. We're making this coloring book. We're making this toy. And so with children, they have such a vivid imagination. And if you say the good guys in your body are fighting the germs, fighting the germs, and you're always going to be winning. And so in, in our game, they, they knock the crown off the coronavirus and they wear the crown themselves because they've won. <laughs> And so with children, it's all about exciting their imagination. Draw some pictures. You are strong and well. Your body knows that we're just at home for a little while while we let this germ just die out because it's not going to survive. And children are all right, except if you panic. You know, if the first time I took her on an aeroplane, she opened the book, she went, Mommy, we can slide out of the aeroplane. <laughs> Because that looked so exciting to her. She didn't know that that was an evacuation plan. And so if they're little enough, excite them. If they're older and they're bored, get them to learn something new, something that will set them up for life. They can learn animation. I mean, at the moment, Harvard and all these schools are giving away free courses. Movie houses are streaming free movies. Book publishers are streaming free books. Libraries are streaming books. But... Many, many universities, including Yale, I think, and Harvard, my daughter told me this yesterday, and are giving away free online courses. So we always say, oh, I'd love more time. Well, you've got some. Use it wisely. Yeah. And you'll look back and think, you know what? This was okay. It was all right. I, I, I learned something new. And we're learning, too, to connect with people, to make friends, Find a neighbor who's alone and at least put a note through their letterbox. You know, there's a great proverb from China, and it says, to be happy, you need three things. Someone to love, something to do, somewhere to go. Well, you have someone to love. It might be you. If you're indoors alone, I'm not going to say all by yourself, but if you're indoors alone, take some time to fall in love with yourself. Imagine what the best partner in the world say to you I love you you're amazing start to say those things to yourself something to do find something to do somewhere to go go inside and do some work on yourself and you'll come out of this better than you went into it yeah well everything that was so amazing especially I want to go back to just um touch on what you said about the kids and the language used that was so freaking powerful because I don't have children, but the thing I fear the most is that right now we, we don't mean to, but we are saying words or doing things that is actually going to be hindrance to um, the society and the younger generation um, later on. So the words we are using, like you were saying, right, don't use catastrophe, um, saying that we're little soldiers and, you know, we're staying in and they, they're dying off on the outside, like even just the way you're framing it, I mm. think it's so powerful because in a year, two, five, ten years, 
I do worry that we're going to see that negative knock-on effect. So um, that was just such a great um, strategy and technique of exactly how we can handle that. It's really fun to look at the language you use. You'll say, I'm the size of a house. I've eaten all weekend nonstop. Really? Did you pee? Yeah, I did. Did you eat while you were peeing? No. Did you sleep? (laughs) Yes. So you didn't really eat for 48 hours like an out-of-control train wreck, did you? No. But you know when you say that you did, your words form and shape your reality. If you don't like your reality, before you try to change your reality, change the words that are shaping it because that will change your reality. We use the most profound words. It's hell. It's it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. Which a Netflix froze. That's what you're. That was hell. That was a Netflix. <laughs> it froze and it was hell. It's just torture, and that's what we do. And you should be saving those powerful words for something good. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. Like Muhammad Ali said, "I told myself I was the greatest before I even knew I was." And when I said it, something amazing happened. I became the greatest. I said, nobody can beat me. And what a concept. Tell yourself the greatest before you even know you are. Not only will you believe it, people around you will believe it too. Tell yourself you're lovable. Tell yourself you're enough. Tell yourself you're significant, that you matter, that you've got something incredible to offer the world. And the world will believe it as long as you believe it. I've heard you talk about where you ask people what lies beneath. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So I always tell people, if you want to be a great therapist, remember that the presenting problem is not the problem. Here am I, and I'm addicted to sugar. Here am I, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. You need to look for what? lies beneath and we teach all of our graduates to look for what lies beneath and treat that because if you treat alcoholism okay you came in your alcoholic I fixed that but now they still have the same feeling that made them drink which is almost always I'm not enough and if I'm not enough I need more I need more alcohol more drugs more food more sex more shopping more something more praise and when you treat the I am not enough and I am enough, all the offshoots of I'm not enough, the hoarding, the shopping, the binging, go away anyway. So I'm always looking at what lies beneath. Here comes a person saying, you know, I I can't find love. Um, I, I need to lose weight or I need to do something. I need to change how I look. And And usually that's not the problem. Here comes someone that says, I've got all these self-destructive habits and I sabotage myself. Can you just fix that? Well, I could. But why do you sabotage yourself? And then when you peel away the layers, up comes the truth. I I feel not good enough. I'm so scared of failing. But if I sabotage myself, I can say, you know what? I coulda, woulda, shoulda. But you see... I had this sabotaging. I was always 30 pounds. I had this drinking problem. And that's why I could never find love or be a success. But what what lies beneath is the real truth. I'm unlovable. I'm not enough. And that's why I can never find love or be a success. But let me just find something to blame it on. And it's a little less painful. Mm. The, The real what lies beneath is I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. 
I'm not lovable. So I always treat what lies beneath, because mm -hmm. when you do that, you fix someone forever. And it's so nice, and not only that, those will become better parents, better partners, better friends, better employees, better employers. So it has a really lovely ripple effect. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, talk to me about RTT. Mm -hmm. um, break that down for me and how people can use it for themselves. Yeah, so when I became a therapist, I've always challenged other people's beliefs and I just didn't understand how therapy should be so long. I looked at other treatments, thought no one said to the dentist, hey, my tooth aches, can I discuss it for a year? I seem to have cracked my knee in terrible pain. Could I come and discuss that for a whole year? So I always wanted to find a technique which could dismantle pain, not just physical pain, the emotional pain, because that's, that's pain too, the mental pain, the pain of having something like anxiety or panic attacks or depression. And I realized that I could do that very fast if I tread what lies beneath. And therapy isn't wrong, but I looked at it and thought, how could I simplify this? Because what people want is to get out of pain fast. So I thought, how could I get people out of pain fast? But it also has to be permanent. And I tell all my grads, there's only three things wrong with everyone in the world. I mean, once you've, you're not going through hunger and poverty in a modern place like America, like England, like France, like Sweden, when you're not starving and you have shelter, there's only three things wrong with anyone, including you and me. The first one is I'm not enough. And if I'm not enough, I can't get enough. I need more praise, more something. And, and so many addictions, in fact, almost all of them are run by not enough. The second thing wrong with people is I'm different, so I can't connect. See, when we lived in a tribe, we never felt different. So, oh, that's my great aunt, that's my cousin. We look the same. We didn't have that difference. But we've also known that the runt of the little, the albino always suffered because they were different. And now we live in multicultural worlds, so it's very easy to think, I feel different, I'm not the same. But the truth is, if your greatest fear is to be different, and that's everyone's greatest fear, what does that mean? It means you're the same. You're the same as everyone. And so many children need to be told, you're the same, you're unique, but you're the same as, nobody is better than you. You're the same. And then the third thing is a very interesting one, which is I want something and I'm going to pursue it, but I know it's not available. I want love. My dad left where I was born, so I'm unlovable. I want health, but my whole family have got the depressed gene or the alcoholic gene. I want money, but I never went to college and no one in my family has money. My dad's gone bankrupt three times, so this it's like running with someone holding a big elastic band around you. It's not available. And so when you can fix those three things, you are the same and therefore you can connect. You are enough. And what you want, wants you and is available to you, you actually fix every single problem people have. Everything is fixed by identifying and fixing those three things. And that's one of the cores of our TT is that Let's shortcut, let's fix what lies beneath. There's only those three things. Let's give you the power to feel good about yourself, to think about what do you need to hear? Well, put those words into yourself. 
forgive yourself, fall in love with yourself. Don't think, well, when I have love, I'll be happy. And then, well, I need a baby now. I, I need something else because our potential expands as we move towards it. So nobody can know what their potential is, but you have to keep going into expansion yourself. And when you, you move your mind to new dimensions, it never moves back, but it goes back again. You have to do it yourself. You can't give someone else the agency to make you feel good about you. I love that. Where does role, function, and purpose fit into RTT? How do you? How can we use that? Role, function, and purpose is, is actually, even with tiny children, it's, it's really talking about what is the role of this illness? You've had it for years. It doesn't appear to want to go away. It keeps coming back. Obviously, there's some reason why it's there. Every time I had to go to my dad's for the weekend, I didn't like him. I got these terrible migraines until I couldn't go. Mm. My parents expected me to be so good at exams, and then I got these terrible panic attacks, couldn't go to school anymore. No one expected me to pass the exam. It's now beginning to see, they're beginning to see that their issue had a role and a function and an intention. It had a job. And you go, okay, so yeah, so we had a girl who had such bad migraines that began when her father began to tell her her job was to take over the family law firm. She said, I don't want to be a lawyer. Well, you must be. I paid for your education. You're my only child. If I had a son, he would have done it. Oh, now I've got to be a lawyer. But when she started to get chronic migraines, well, you'd be lucky if you'd be a waitress. You couldn't mm. possibly be a lawyer. It's like, oh, got out of that. And even tiny children. I worked with this little boy who had contact dermatitis everywhere. Well, every night I stand like that, and mummy puts bandages, cream and wet bandages on my body. And while she's putting them on, it takes so long to doesn't put any cream on that baby. So now you unpick that. He doesn't want to put cream on the baby, he wants to put cream on him. It doesn't take a genius to work out that at some stage he said, Mummy, can I have a massage? No, it's just for the baby. Mummy, can you put cream on? No, you're grown up. And he thought a thought. I want mummy to put cream on me. And here's the thing, your mind is the genie, your wish is its command. I want mummy to put cream on me. The genie's like, I do that. Now you've got dermatitis, mummy's putting lots of cream on you. Maybe you've got psoriasis. And the genie doesn't think, shall I find a good way, a logic, it just finds a way. Mm. But then you just have to talk to the genie better and it will find a better way. Yeah, God. I love the way you think. I love the way you break it down. In just me researching you, so this is the second time that we've done an interview together. Um, well, third time, really, because you interviewed yeah, I me. Did. And in diving deep into you this time, I, as I was listening to you talking about these different things, I had a realization. I'm like, I've been in this space for years and I only had a realization because you breaking it down like that, I started to really think about myself and I was just reflecting, okay, what does this mean? I've put, I used to get bullied for my looks when I was a teenager. And so I've definitely attached worthiness to looks. But it never occurred to me until I was hearing you talk about really young kids. When I was really young, I was so freaking cute. And I got, and people used to say, you get away with murder. Yeah. You want to talk about words? Growing up, literally from the age of like three yeah. to the age of like probably six, I was told every day, you're so cute, you're going to get away with murder, you're so cheeky, I could do naughty things. And my mom, oh, she's so cheeky. 
And then at the age of six, I started to change. I then hit puberty. Mm. I started getting the frizzy hair. I started getting the mustache. I started getting the unibrow and everything went away. And not only was I not getting any attention, I was getting the opposite. Yeah. And so as I was hearing you talking and breaking things down from how things go from even just like a real young child mm -hmm. to your teenage years, to your adult years, I've carried that with me in the attachment of your looks would then equate to worth. And if mm. you don't have the looks, then you're not worthy. Um, and it wasn't until the last you know, let's say five years that I've done my own mental work and mm. everything that you're saying to change that. But it never dawned on me that I had the two flips from yeah. the kid to the teenage years. Yeah, you've got to be very careful what you say around children. It's like people say, you're so lovely, I could eat you. What a weird thing for parents <laughs> to say. Oh, I could, oh yeah, your kid is great. Yeah, come at two o'clock in the morning, you can have him. You know, we say really strange things in front of our kids and it really freaks them out. Mm. They just, and I nearly died having you, it killed me. Mm. You've got to be so careful because so many of us don't understand that before five, there's no logic, just feeling. A child doesn't have logic. So when dad says, well, I'm le I still love you, but I'm leaving mommy, they hear, I don't love you. You've got to be so careful. They're so easily rejected. Why can't you draw inside the lines like your brother, your sister didn't get food all over the floor. And then you get teachers going, oh, I had your sister, the brains ran out when they got to you. Mm. And children hear so many wounding things. We, you know, we can't make it perfect. Sure. But you have to, as a parent, say to your kid, look, you're, you're special just the way you are. You don't have to be good at maths or don't compare yourself to other people, just be you. Mm. And as an adult, then, you think it's important to go that far back to the five-year-old self? Because I, I hear a lot now people are talking about the inner child. Oh, yeah. Beyond that, you can go back to, you know, I've worked with so many people with unexplained infertility, which is a fascinating label because it means it's unexplainable. Your ovaries are great. You're wounded. Your husband's sperm is like military-grade sperm. Swims straight. There's tons of it. So your infertility is unexplained. But then people would come in and we'd always go back to the, the genie and the wish. And they'd often say things like, yeah, it's so bizarre. I can remember my mother carrying me on her hip. Was, oh, how, oh, it was awful. I nearly died. I bled for three days. I was in act. Never again. Or my mother would say later, oh, yes, Lena, that you ruined my body. I was in agony after I had you. I cried for five days. I got postnatal depression. And a child thinks, oh, I, I don't want to go through that. And... So many times when we're babies, we're sponges. Babies pick up everything, the pure sensation. They pick up the tone of your voice. They pick up the look on your face. And I was doing a group session once and this very successful city guy started to sob and sob and sob. And I was, he said, every time my dad changed my diaper, he'd make a face. He'd go, oh, this is disgusting. He said, and I, I really felt he didn't love me. Mm. I always felt disconnected. I just worked with somebody recently for my book who said that when her mother, her mum was pregnant with a second baby, her father put a gate up so she couldn't get out of her bedroom and come and get into bed with her mother, which she always did. And he said, no, you can't go mum. He's obviously thought she would dislodge the new baby. And he was very concerned that she must get used to not being in mum's arms. And then suddenly the new baby's come and she's behind the stair gate she can't get. And she said, I've always felt this anger towards my dad and I never knew why. He's a lovely guy, but I've been so angry with him. 
I started to really act out as a teenager to punish him and I never knew it's because when I was two, I couldn't express the rage. Mm. I just knew it was his fault. He got between me and my mom and I internalized it. It's really interesting how you can really go back to being tiny, which shouldn't be surprising because before five, you are pure feeling. All you can do is feel, but don't feel that. Don't get angry, don't cry. I'll smack you if you cry. I'll punish you if you're angry. Then we think, oh, what can I do with these feelings? So we just have to internalize them. That's so fascinating, especially because we started talking about the feelings that come yeah. from the words that you use yeah. in your head. But thinking about being a kid and not even having words to exactly. use. So your feelings are being attached to words that other people are saying. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. Yeah, so it's Honestly, so I'd be confusing. petrified to have children. Like, if, or, like, oh my God, using this word is going to mess them up. Obviously, that's not a reason no. to not have kids. All you have but... to do with kids is own it and go, darling, I messed up today. They know life isn't perfect. It's not about that. It's about you owning your mistakes and mm. saying, you know, you're allowed to make a mess. You're allowed to break stuff. You're allowed to be age appropriate. You know, you're running in the park. I shout, stop. You wouldn't expect your puppy to stop until the third time. And so why would you expect your kid to stop? They do age appropriate, they get food on the floor, they mess up. And it's really about forgiving them, forgiving yourself, always saying that that was my fault. I messed up today. You, you deserve better. And then they're completely okay. Because you're teaching them that it's okay to mess up. Yeah, it's okay to, they can mess up which then means that you can mess up mm -hmm. because they, if you don't expect them to be perfect, they wouldn't expect you to mean so many parents do the wildest things like, you know, my kid can't answer back. Well, good luck with that when some 15 year old says, let's have sex in the back of the car because you've taught them. They mm. can't say no. Huh. My kid doesn't answer back. So what are you going to do when their friend says, let's go shoplifting. It's fun. Come on. Someone's going to offer your kid drugs. If you don't allow them to argue back and to have an opinion, how are they going to have an opinion? That's why they get really unbearable when they're like 15, because they're learning to argue back. So that when someone says, let's take drugs, let's get wasted, let's go and steal someone's credit card, you want to have the one that goes, you know what, that doesn't feel good for me, because you've allowed them to have an opinion. You talk very eloquently about imprint and you actually say that the mind is always switched on it records everything and it never forgets and the reason yeah. why i want to start that there is because right now we are all making an, an imprint of what the coronavirus means to us what it means to be a stay at home what it means to be isolated and so i want to talk um, through how we how imprint works and how we can actually make sure that the imprint that we're doing right now is actually for the positive and not for the negative yeah, and that's such a good, that's such a great question. And just a little tiny basic understanding of human psychology makes it so much easier because it's very easy to go, I'm suffering and I'm not coping and it's my fault and there's something wrong with you. And you can go, actually, it's my wiring. I'm wired to do this and now I feel okay. For instance, human beings are wired having tremendous pain to loss. We react three times more to loss than to gain. But loss is subjective, and the only way you can cope with being at home for a period of time, and I'm deliberately not saying enforced, lockdown, quarantine, because they're very negative words. The only way you can cope with being at home for a while is to look at 
Is there anything at all that's good about it? You have to move your mind away from loss to gain. I'm, I'm, I've lost my freedom. I might have lost my job. I might have lost my partner because we can't see each other anymore. Or I'm so cooked, I want to lose my partner. They're driving me crazy. So the only way you can cope with anything like this is to move your mind away from loss to gain. Oh, I've got time to watch all these Netflix news. I've got time to go on YouTube and learn a brand new skill. I've got time to cook with my children. I've got time to make healthy food. I always say I don't have time to work out. I don't have time to meditate. I need more time. Well, we've all got more time. And if you use that time wisely, you look back and say, you know what? wasn't that bad. So your ability to look at a terrible situation and go, could there be one good thing about it? I'm actually doing puzzles with my kids, cooking with my kids. And you have to make yourself look. But if you look for what's good, you will find it. And there are two other things about human psychology that are also playing out as well as the loss. One is Human beings need certainty, the certainty that I'm okay, I have a job, I have enough money, I have health, someone loves me. And we don't have certainty because we don't know when this is going to end. You know, you can cope with severe pain if it has an ending. So there is no certainty. When's it going to end? We don't know. But we know one thing, give yourself certainty. Get up and have a routine. Get dressed go downstairs, going on two hours on my computer, one hour working out, 20 minutes meditating. Then I can have three hours watching Netflix, and then I'm going to make some phone calls. So if you can make your life kind of how it was before, like, you know, I work from home anyway. I film a lot. My life doesn't feel that different. I know I'm very lucky. But you have to give yourself the certainty. You know, and the other thing about humans, and they're very important, is that we don't like change unless we can control the direction of change in our life and make it good. It's why we're scared of aging and we're scared of being sick. But if you didn't fear it, you'd be great. So you have to think, okay, this is a weird change. I can deal with it. And you know what? We have actually been here before. In 9-11, we were told life will never be the same again. In the Gulf War in the UK, they said life will never be the same again. I was here when the AIDS epidemic hit. I think I was 20, and they said life will never be the same again. But it was the same. Back we bounce, and we will come back from this. So give yourself certainty. Focus on something good. Control the direction of change. And you won't just cope with it well. You'll cope with it phenomenally. But you have to do that. God, I love that so much. Um, I want to go so deep in a lot of things that you just said. So I, where I want to start is like how words matter. Like that is so powerful. Mm. And people may dismiss the amount of power that that holds. So I have heard you say, for instance, don't talk about this situation right now as being a catastrophe. Like yeah. that is so true. And I think that's where we're going wrong with all the news and everything. It's such a fear monger. And it is a catastrophe. The world's falling apart. Because people so, say, this is an apocalypse, you know. Right. This is, somebody says to me, they've taken away my freedom. I'm like, what freedom? You have freedom to choose what to eat, what to watch, what to wear. You have freedom to choose what to think. Mm -hmm. You have Wi-Fi. You have freedom. Nobody can take your freedom away unless you let them. So when you say, 
I'm in quarantine. And by the way, we're not in quarantine. That's when you're in hospital. I'm in a lockdown. You're not actually locked down. <laughs> you're allowed to go for a walk, a bike, right? You're allowed to go to the stores, which have food. So when you say I'm in quarantine, I'm in lockdown. This is an apocalypse. Mm. This is terrifying. This is hell. This is a nightmare. This is a d disaster. This is a pandemic. No, it's not. It's not even isolation. It's a little retreat. Uh, I was about to say, what words can we right now transfer, transform them? So I like the retreat. That's so good. Well, at home, I'm at home. I don't say I'm locked in. I'm stuck indoors. I'm trapped. I'm cooped up because the mind really responds to words that are painful because how we survive as people on the planet was anything that caused us pain, we remembered it and avoided it. So once you link pain to that, your mind remembers. Like if you have a boyfriend called Ian who breaks your heart, you'll hate that name for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's so true. It's just what happens. And so when you use those words, catastrophe, locked in, shut in, cooped up, locked indoors, stuck in the house. You know, stuck doesn't seem like a bad word, but it is bad because it means you can't move forwards. So find something else. I'm in the house. I'm at home. This situation is a challenge. It's not perfect, but it's all right. It's all right. You see, the words okay and all right actually don't make a picture. So you can either make very bland words, it's okay, it's all right. or you could say, actually, some, some of it is good. I'm finding some good stuff in here. A lot of people are saying, you know, I'm connecting with my neighbors. I'm spending more time doing stuff. But the way you feel is down to two things, the pictures you make in your head and the words you construct. And you see, we know it's subjective because if I had a syringe in my hand right now, I was about to put it in my body. If I was having a tattoo, that would be a good image. If I was having, if I had toothache and my dentist was going to give me an injection, it would be a good thing. If I was in immense pain, I'd, I'd want that needle. But if I don't like needles, then it's painful. If I have a lump of meat in my hand, what is that? Well, if I'm a Hindu, it's really offensive. If I'm a vegan, it's disgusting. And if I'm a paleo person, it's like, yay, it's amazing. <laughs> so we don't react to the meat or the needle. <clears throat> we react to what we think about the meat or the needle. It's your beliefs, and that's very, very good news because you can change your belief any time you like. So that can really work for you, or it can make it right. It, it's your choice. I love that. So knowing that it's our choice right now, we've just got so much input coming in, right? There's so much advice out there of what to do. There's a lot of experts talking about how we navigate, whether it's, you know, um, logistically staying at home or just emotionally and things like that with what we're talking about. But like, for instance, let's take the toilet paper situation. I saw that you did a video on toilet paper yeah. and it's like, it's become a thing now, but it's almost become a thing because people are saying it's a thing. So yeah. if you're getting all this input, like you're saying, how do you um, navigate that and make sure that if you have a choice that I am actually choosing what is better and serving me versus what is not serving me? Yeah, and that's such an interesting thing because it's that thing. Okay, if I hoard toilet paper, I feel like I'm in control. If I buy stuff, I feel like I'm in charge of the change going on. I mean, you can't eat toilet paper. That's not going to do you any use at all. But it's that same feeling of I'm out of control. 
And as humans, we're, we're told a lie. You're happy to the degree that you are in control. Control your weight. People envy you. Go out looking like you've just been steam cleaned with every hair perfect. And people think, oh, this is a person who's got control of their life. Have a perfect home, perfect kids, a perfect shiny car. But there's no such thing as control. You can't control the weather. You can't control your body because if you could, you'd never get sick. The only thing you can control are your thoughts. Your thoughts control your feelings. Your feelings control your actions, and your actions dictate and control your events. The law of control begins and indeed ends with your thinking. But the hoarding is just a mentality of if I have a garage full of stuff, I'm in control. I've got certainty. I've got gain and not loss. And I'm controlling the direction of change in my life. But certainty is in here. Control is in here. If you control your thinking, you don't need to go around town like a crazy person trying to stockpile toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, I started to um, get quite panicky about the food situation because I've got such health issues. And then I actually stopped and I was like, but Lisa, what's the worst that can happen? Like if you have no food and you're stuck in a situation, the unforeseen, right? No one actually knows what's happening. What is that worst case scenario? Okay, well, I may have food that hurts my digestion. Okay, if that's the worst case scenario, can I live with that? Yeah. And so once I started breaking it down like that and kind of identifying the fear and then really go, but what if that happens, then what? It really did help me uh, just come to a like relaxed point where it's like now I don't, I'm not worried. It is what it is. If I'm out of food, I'll figure it out. Um, but I know that it's causing a lot of anxiety in people. It is making it very anxious. But again, what causes anxiety? Your thoughts. Like if you got on a plane and thought, oh my God, the plane's going to drop out of the sky. That person looks like a terrorist. There's a funny sound going on. Then you'll have a totally different flight to someone who says, wow, they've got my favorite movie on. I just picked up this great book. Oh, I like the food. I'm going to sit here for seven hours and completely chill because everything is down to how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts control your feelings, but you have to take control of your thinking you always have a choice to say I'm trapped. They've taken away my freedom. I'm in hell. But it, it's really down to the way you think. You, your thought, you make your beliefs, but then your beliefs turn right around and make, make you. But then even more weird is the whole world seems to match. If you believe I'm trapped in the house, you've made that belief, but now the belief is making you and you're looking there's so many reasons why you're trapped. You're trapped and you can't get away and the house is too small and the kids are making you crazy. And the more you focus on being trapped, the more you feel trapped. Mm. Some years ago, I worked with a client who could not have a CAT scan, literally couldn't get in that machine. And he said, I feel like I'm in a coffin. When, the, when it starts to go towards it, I feel like I'm in my coffin. It's a premonition of my death. And so I, I can't have a cat. And every time I go in it, I completely freak out. And then I have to press the button and come out. And I said, but why don't you say I'm in my bed? I'm in my bed at night. I'm so chilled. This is amazing. And, and he'd been trying to have this cat scan for two months. And then when he did it and all the hospital staff applauded him, they were so proud of me. So I actually cried. He said it was such an achievement. I could get in the scanner. 
And a few years later, I found myself having a CAT scan at Cedars Sinai. And it was very interesting because they actually shut you in a room. You're locked up in this room. It's like a whole X-ray machine. And I thought, okay, I'm going to play a game here. So when I was in the machine, I started to say, I'm so chilled and I feel like I'm lying at home in my bed with my lovely pillows and I can hear the ducks outside and this is lovely. And then I decided to go, oh, I'm in a coffin. I'm trapped in here. And the minute I did that, the nurse said, Marissa, you're moving. Your whole mm. body is moving. you got to keep completely still. And so I was playing the game. I'm chilled. I'm in a coffin. I'm free. I'm trapped. And it was fascinating me to see what I did to myself by changing my language. But you see, that's the choice everyone has. You have a genius mind and you have a choice. Rationalize where everything is going wrong and it's all hell and awful. Or talk yourself out of it. This will pass. This situation being at home will pass. Everything will go back to normal. And it might even be better because we've learned to value people who work in hospitals, people who work in stores. We realize we need other people. We need our neighbors.